The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Professor Anindya Ghosh of NYU Stern, where he focuses on mobile technology and information services. We spent a lot of time talking about his new book, Tap, Unlocking the Mobile Economy. And rather just repeat what we discussed, I want to give you a visual to think about. Uh, I'm a big fan of science fiction and um, anything that Philip K. Dick wrote that is subsequently turned into a movie including Minority Report, and everybody focuses on the precog aspect of that movie, the ability to anticipate who's going to cause a crime. There's a lot of very forward technologies in the movie, but there's a scene in the film where Tom Cruise, the main character, is running through a, a shopping district and is bombarded with advertisement, not general ads, not billboards, but 3D holographic ads specifically tailored to him. The retailer identifies him as a unique individual. They have access to his prior um, shopping preferences, and they're showing him specifically tailored advertisements uh, as he passes through in pursuit of whatever it was. I don't remember. The fascinating aspect of this uh, in our my conversation with Professor Ghost, wasn't that, hey, this is the future, this is 100 years or 50 years uh, off in the distance, but rather mobile technology are uniquely identified phones, all the data we generate when we shop, when we use apps, when we just move about in the city means that that sort of minority report technology is only two or three years away. And I found that to be absolutely astonishing. It's a fascinating conversation about technology and the future. And it turns out the future ain't that far off in the future. It's practically here now. So with no further ado, my conversation with Professor Anindya Ghosh. My special guest today is Aninda Ghosh. He is a professor of information, operations, and management science at NYU's Stern School of Business. He is the youngest ever recipient of the prestigious Informs ISS Distinguished Fellow Award. He has been named by Businessweek as one of the top 40 professors under 40 worldwide. Analytics Week called him one of their top 200 thought leaders in big data and business analytics. He's written more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, and is the author of his first book, Tap, Unlocking the Mobile Economy. Ananda Ghosh, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to be here. You cover some sections of the, the economy and some sectors of technology that I find absolutely fascinating. In fact, you cover a broad range of topics consumer behavior, internet, digital marketing, big data, social media, and all the related business analytics. How did that broad collection of topics come together for you as a as a 
researcher. So I first started working uh, in this area in 2004, and you know I was basically curious about all things internet. Uh, in 2004, you know, we were just about seeing the emergence of e-commerce, you know, the likes of Amazon cropping up and people buying and selling books on the internet. Um, so that's how the journey started. Um, as the internet evolved, you know, we saw the emergence of companies trying to use that as a platform to market their products. So that's why we saw the emergence of search engines like Google come in. We saw the emergence of you know, other kinds of digital marketing platforms on the internet. And so I've always had this you know, interest in figuring out what is it that consumers are doing on the internet and how can companies leverage those differences in behavior to, you know, to better curate products and market products and so on. And as the internet eventually moved into mobile, um, by 2008, this first smartphone was already out there. That really sort of got me thinking more and more deeply about consumer behavior on mobile. And on the mobile phone, we are doing social media, you know, we're responding to ads, we're responding, we're creating a lot of data, and that's how all these things come together. So, so let's talk about the, the smartphone. Uh, essentially, the intersection of all those different technology sectors we just mentioned, is this the single most transformative consumer device ever to be created? I would say so. In fact, in my book, I actually mentioned this that, you know, by 2008, when I first started thinking about this topic, it was pretty clear to me that the smartphone would be, in fact, the most transformative thing that we've ever seen. And, you know, in 10 years after that, now we do see, in fact, there's plenty of evidence it is because it's almost embedded on us. And, you know, there's uh, people often ask me, is this a tipping point? I don't necessarily see that the smartphone is going to become a remote control button. Smart homes, smart cars, everything's going to be controlled by the smartphone. It, I have to tell you, when you look at the amount of technology today that exists, so you can control your nest, you can control your car, you could start your car remotely, you can control the temperature of your mm -hmm. pool remotely, your security system your video camera, at what point does the the phone just simply stop being a phone and just becomes a mobile computer? Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know, already kind of getting there, right? I mean, by now, the phone is much more than a phone. You know, it's a camera, it's a flashlight, you know, it's my television, it's my book as well, it's everything, right? So I think the convergence of various digital phenomena on the smartphone has already happened. And my prediction, and I mentioned this in my book, is that a lot more is going to happen. And and by by what I mean by that is exactly what you said, which is people are going to start controlling their appliances, their homes, their cars, other sorts of things. Let, let's put let's put a number on um, some of the venture capital investing in the space. In 2010, less than four percent of all venture capital funding was going to mobile startups. As of 2014, which is already a good couple of years ago, it's now about 8%. So mm -hmm. we're up 100% or so from 2010 to 2014. Is is mobile just going to consume the lion's share of all these new tech startups? I think that number is going to only keep increasing, right? And and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, over the last five years, we have, consumers have been spending more and more time on mobile devices. Mm -hmm. You know, from, from 2012 to 2016, the last five years, we've come from roughly, you know, about 10% of our time to about 25, 26% of our time on mm -hmm. these devices. And what's that's telling companies is that there's a lot of opportunity for monetization, 
because right now advertisers are only putting in 12% of their ad dollars on mobile phones. Mm-hmm. So there's a disconnect. You know, consumers are spending twice that time. time. Companies are spending half the money. So there's a disconnect. Let, let's look at the jobs a little bit. The Boston Consulting Group came out and said that mobile technologies are going to be or, or just about at a $3.3 trillion investable sector over the next few years, and they expect it to create 11 million new jobs. Yeah. Is is this the next boom sector or, or currently the, the biggest sector that we should expect new jobs from? I think certainly at least one of the top two or top three biggest sectors. You know, those 11, $3.3 trillion is only 4.2% of the world's GDP. Mm-hmm. And so you can only imagine it has to grow from here. The other thing that's going to propel jobs is, you know, one thing is that the mobile app economy is growing by leaps and bounds. And so every time you've got a new app, you know, you need an entire army of employees. But also aside from the fact is the data. So I talk a lot about how, you know, consumer tapping on the phone creates data. So they need data scientists. They need business analytics. Uh, they not, need- not just tapping on the phone, but where they physically are, what else they're running what else they had previously been doing. There's an enormous stream of data that we all create just carrying the phones around. Exactly, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about mobile. Uh, You you referenced earlier the ad spends. Some of the numbers are just astonishing. One estimate claims mobile ad spending will top $100 billion by next year, by 2018. How effective is this advertising and what alternatives do marketers have other than mobile? So my studies and projects over the last 10 years, you know, across three different continents and across multiple countries has actually demonstrated very rigorously that mobile advertising is very effective mm-hmm. um, if you do it right. Okay? How do you do it right? And, and what do people who do it wrong, what are they doing wrong? All right. So one of the things I talk about in my book is companies who are doing it right are the ones who are creating a concierge or a butler in your smartphone. Mm-hmm. Okay, the companies who do it wrong are the ones who are creating this creepy stalker. <laughs> okay, so it's and a some, mind. some like Uber managed to do both. Yeah, it, it's well. a full concierge, <laughs> and then we've just found out they were stalking people even after they deleted uh deleted the app. Yeah, I mean they are going to get into trouble, and you know, I mean for a number of reasons they've been in trouble for a long time now, one episode after another. But you know, just from a brand advertiser's perspective. Um, there's a thin line dividing the coolness and the creepiness. And you know, in my book, I talk about a lot of the case studies where we've been actually been very successful in remaining cool and not digressing into the creepy and, stuff. And the book is Tap, Unlocking the Mobile Economy. So what can a app provider do to stay on the right side of the cool, creepy divide? Right, so two things. One is you wanna reduce the frequency of how often you message your consumer Mm -hmm. through an offer or an ad, and you wanna increase the relevancy of that messaging. Okay. Right now, we have the opposite. We are getting inundated by ads, which are not necessarily very relevant right. and redundant. Right, uh, absolutely. So how does a company do that? How do you focus in on what is relevant, and how do you avoid haranguing because, um, you know, I use an, uh, uh, a service called Lemail because uh-huh. I'm loath to give anybody my real email address uh-huh. because... Uh, you know, if I buy something, it's not an invitation to send me a daily update. In fact, you know what? Once a month is plenty for most of the retailers or what have you uh, I'm interested in, but it seems to be, all right, we have this person's email address. Let's, Let's bang on their head daily and hopefully they'll buy something. 
Usually I unsubscribe, yep. I delete the app, and Lemail allows me to, whether they actually unsubscribe me or not, it allows me to turn that email off mm-hmm. so they can market to me all they want. I never see a single yeah, yeah. Uh, a single thing from them. Right. So so where is that line and how do you stay on the right side of it? So basically right now what's happening is, you know, co- companies are sending like hitting dots in the air and hoping one will stick, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason it's happening is even though this might seem very surprising, they actually don't have enough information on consumers, on a given consumer, mm-hmm. okay? And this might seem astonishing given this world of data, right? right? The reason is because, and I talk about this in the book a lot, is the data is actually fragmented. It's all in silos. So somebody has to come and stitch it together, and absent that, what's gonna keep happening is companies will keep inundating us with these offers. So you would think that Apple in iOS and Google with Android are the ones who can stitch all that data together. They have access to all the data that every app generates. Mm-hmm. Are they moving in that direction? And are we creating a monopoly or oligopoly amongst the big players who have access to all our data? Right. So what's really fascinating is that you know Google and Facebook are sort of the two lead players who are essentially putting this infrastructure together. Meaning what? Meaning that between the publisher and the advertiser, they have created these intermediaries called ad exchanges uh-huh. and DSPs and SSPs and a lot of the technical jargon. But the basic job for these companies is to stitch the data together. Mm-hmm. Okay? What's also fascinating is the next big challenge to these companies is going to come from telecom providers. So why did Verizon buy out AOL? Why did Verizon buy out Yahoo? Verizon does not see itself as a telecom provider anymore. It's, they're not just a pipe. They're, they're looking just to not be a, pipe. a full service they, provider. Actually, if you ask their top management, they will say, well, you know, we are actually the next big media tech company. We want to take on Google and Facebook. And they can hmm. you know, because they have so much data, right? That, that's, that's quite fascinating. You know, when we look at some of the data points that mobile has generated, I, I'm fascinated by this. After the launch of the iPhone, voice minutes amongst 18 to 34-year-olds fell from 1,200 to 900 minutes per month within two years. So that's a 25% drop. Over the same time period, texting more than doubled from 600 to 1,400 messages per month over that same period. Mm -hmm. The, The impact of this is really quite enormous. It is. I mean, look, first of all, there is a very you know, non-trivial consumer behavioral change, right? We're not talking on the phone anymore. We are tapping and texting, right? Mm -hmm. Every tapping, every texting is creating data about our behavior. But more importantly, you know, coming back to the telecom providers, because that's how they get the services, they are not making that much money anymore on those products that they used to make money on, which is internet, voice, and and text messaging. That's why, you know, whether it's Verizon or uh, Telefonica in Germany or China Mobile, SK Telecom, they realize the next big bet is monetizing the user data, the user location data, mm-hmm. our behavioral data, you know, all of the contextual data. And that's what they're moving into. Here's another fascinating data point from the book. 98% of text messages are read within 90 seconds of delivery. Mm-hmm. Are, are we at risk of never being disconnected? And what are the ramifications of that? Um, so, you know, I, I guess I belong to the group who does not think there's a problem in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I do not mind the fact that we are immersed in our devices. Um, and the reason is because, you know, everything that I've seen is that there is, there is actually a positive side to this as well. 
which is which is going back to my argument before that the reason companies are sending us all these offers is they don't have enough information. But the more we immerse ourselves on the device, the more data it generates, and the more information now companies will have, which will then let them reduce the frequency of the messaging, increase the relevancy. Let, let's talk a little bit about mobile retail and, and what the impact is. A recent report from Credit Suisse estimated that there could be 8,600 store closings this year, which would be higher than the peak in 2008 and significantly higher than last year. What is the state of retailing in America? Okay, so this is a great question. And one of my favorites because mobile, as I've studied over the years, is a double-edged sword for retailing, okay? And here's why. On one side, you know, offline retailers have been petrified by the fact that consumers have been mobile showrooming, meaning that while they're inside a physical brick and mortar store and they found something they like, and yet they're actually looking for the same product online, on their phone, looking for a cheaper price. Let, let me interrupt you and ask you a question about that. I used to have an app on my phone called uh, Amazon Price Guide. I'm gonna actually yep. have to take a quick look at it. Right. And yet Amazon ended up I don't want to say price check is the name mm -hmm. of it. Amazon doesn't seem to be supporting that app anymore. Um, is showrooming still the problem it was a few years ago? Okay, so yes and no in the following sense. So showrooming was a massive problem up until recently. The likes of these physical brick and mortar retailers were losing 53% of their traffic to the likes of Amazon and Meaning online. Meaning someone would go into Best Buy, look at a television or, or whatever, find it was uh, 50 bucks cheaper on Amazon and walk out. That's right, and buy it on Amazon. So you just lost one customer there. So one in two people were doing that. Wow. Now, the reason I say it's a double-edged sword is today the offline retailers have a tremendous resource in the same phone which was once a threat to them because now using these location-based targeting technologies, they can send you a coupon in real time when you're in Best Buy to prevent you from walking out without buying the TV. And in my book, actually, I talk a lot about these case studies where based on you know whether it's the Wi-Fi in the store or the beacon in the store mm -hmm. or the GPS, these retailers are able to sense where you are and send you an offer and delight you and impress you and surprise you. So couldn't they simply have just matched Amazon's price to begin with? And, and you know, if Amazon is providing a lower price or any online retailer mm -hmm. is providing a lower price, uh, what right. is the advantage of the coupon, or is it that you, some people come in and pay the full price anyway, and the price-sensitive people get the coupon and they go that way? That's exactly what it is. Basically, you know, any sort of location-based mobile coupon strategy has to be incrementally useful to the company. You don't want to send a blanket price-matching policy for everybody, right? Because right? many people will just be happy paying the higher they price. They go in, they buy, they're out, right. they don't want to be bothered. Right. It's the stragglers, the really price-sensitive folks, the bargain hunters whom you don't want to lose. That's where the location-based technology is useful. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to advertising because it, it relates back to this. In the old days, we used to take ink and spray it on mashed up trees, and, and it was called a newspaper or a magazine. <laughs> back in the 1950s, there was something like 50... There was something like 54 million paid subscriptions to newspapers. Uh, that number is under 43 million as of 2010, but relative to population, uh, it's a 70% decrease. Mm -hmm. So when I think of all these retailers, I remember 
There was always a Best Buy circular in the Sunday paper. There was always mm-hmm. a Target circular. I assume that still goes on. Uh, I just hardly read a print paper uh, the way I used to. What does the the diminishing of, of print as a communication channel, how, how does that impact retailers and what are they doing to overcome the loss of that channel? Right, so it means two things. One is, and if you're a retailer, you're still spending money on physical newspapers for advertising, you're wasting it. Mm-hmm. Now, people only spend 6% of their entire time reading a physical newspaper or a magazine, wow. right? Unfortunately, that's what it is. So what they should be doing is actually putting that money on that magic device, which is the smartphone, right? So instead of spending money in print newspapers, you should actually spend money investing in these location-based advertisement, location-based mm-hmm. coupons, um, all of these technologies that enable companies to do so in what, real time. Let's talk a little bit about travel and, and what we see uh, here in the United States, there are about 150 million smartphones. Uh, 90% of these are use location services. How is this data being shared, and who has access to that data? So um, a lot depends on how the app is actually owned, right? So if the company, if the travel company or the travel site owns the app, then clearly you know the app developer belongs to the company and they own it. If it's a third-party app developer, then the app developer will have it, and highly likely they will be sharing it with the company because that's how the arrangement is. Mm-hmm. Um, so those that happens for sure. And we were talking uh, off air before, but let, let's bring this up. There seems to be a sort of uh, ambiguousness about what people say mm-hmm. their concerns with privacy actually are, and then what they actually do. So I'm pretty concerned about privacy. I don't like sharing my email address or my location or a whole bunch of other data points with companies. But yet the generation that's younger than me, they seem to, they could not possibly care less about these privacy issues. They share the data freely. What is the standard? What's going on with that? What should an app company reasonably expect from their users? So, you know, various studies uh, we have done and others have shown that 70% of millennials are very willing to share their data as a currency to get something in value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 35% of Generation Z and Generation Y are willing to do the same, okay? Less so with baby boomers, okay? Um, but, you know, if you are a marketer today and you're thinking about your target segment, target population, right? For the, lo- for the you know, most part, it's actually... Gen Zs, Gen X, Gen Ys, and millennials, right? So you want to stay in with the trend and keep targeting them. And if they are actually responding to this data exchange, data barter economy, so what you really want to do is be their butler and concierge by sending them a curated, relevant message. That's what you want to be doing. So supposedly, uh, this was just reported in the Times not too long ago when Tim Cook discovered that Uber was capturing the unique identifier, the mm-hmm. fingerprints of each phone, and using it to track Uber users, even those who have removed the app, um, he threatened them with taking, kicking them out of the uh, app store. So it yes. raises a couple of questions. First, how bad is the behavior of Uber? And second, it seems like Apple has an awful lot of power because have they kicked Uber out? that pretty much would have been the end of Uber. 
Sure. I mean, first of all, it's terrible behavior on part of Uber. They violated the two simple mantras of data privacy, which is notice and consent. You mm -hmm. need to notify consumers what are you doing with the data, and then you need to ask for consent. They violated them both, right? They, they didn't tell them they were tracking them, and, and they obviously never got consent. Exactly. Um, and of course, you know, if you at the end of the day, it's an app. It is a big $80 billion company, but it's an app. The way people access the app is through an app store. If an Apple or a Samsung decides to kick them out, that's it for them. I mean, how are they going to- It's fatal. In other fatal. words, yeah. you, the, you would think no one would want to mess around do anything that would even remotely put them at risk. I, I'm surprised Apple didn't just freeze them out for a week to flex some muscles and say, hey, anybody else thinking about doing this, it's going to cost you a lot of money. But it raises the question, does Apple and Android have too much power over the, the app economy and, and modern technological life? I mean, I don't see it that way. I don't think they have too much power. I think they have appropriate power. Um, it is their own store, after all. It is all. their store, and you know, consumers have a choice. You know, they can go to a Google Play Store or an Apple App Store, and some of the other third-party companies also have their Amazon as an App Store too. Mm -hmm. um, I think you know their power is a reflection of consumer preferences. And sure. So, right. So, um, that that's quite that's quite fascinating. Yeah. Let Let's talk about the location-based advertising. Numbers, you, you were referencing it earlier. It's expected to grow to $15 billion in 2018. This was under $2 billion just three years ago. That, that's a 54% compound an, annual mm -hmm. growth rate. How long can this continue uh, uh, global real-time location-based advertising? How long can this grow at that astonishing rate? for many years in the foreseeable future. Really? I mean, right now, we're only scratching the tip of the iceberg here, right? And it's because a small fraction of people are the ones who are opening up their GPS data and saying, okay, here's where I am, send me an offer. That number is only gonna grow. And in everything that I've seen in the last 10 years in different parts of the world is telling me that, um, you know, this is a very tiny portion of the actual potential of how much can be monetized in this space. So there's a fascinating um, data point in the book where you talk about the psychological component of how people behave in groups right. when they're using apps and when they're um, shopping. And, and the data point that jumped out, in 2015, there were about five and a half million people riding the subway in New York City every day. That puts it about seventh worldwide. You did a study that found on crowded subways, people were twice as likely to respond to a mobile offer than commuters on non-crowded trains. What is the thinking behind this? Why would crowdedness affect mobile purchases? Right. So this is actually one of my favorite studies in the book. Basically, you know, what we did is we exploited or leveraged the variation in crowdedness in different parts of the time, different times of the day in different cities, mm -hmm. and send people offers and effectively measured how people responded to these offers when they are in this crowded train station or subway stations, right? And, and these are real-time, real geo-synced, so it's just this one station, even this one train. That's correct. So we know exactly. We are working with a telecom provider, which has 70% of the market share. The, we know where you are, which train you are in. In fact, we also know which compartment in the train you are in. Okay? Really? So uh, <laughs> that's a level of, because you know, the, the definition of location has changed completely. You know, mm -hmm. you know, companies can identify you within three feet. So 
what we saw is that as the level of crowdedness increased from one person per square meter to up to five person per square meter, mm -hmm. the propensity for people to positively respond to these marketing offers continually kept increasing. And to the point where at five meters per square meter was fairly crowded, they were 49% more likely than to respond to these offers uh, than in the previous uh, metric. Okay? And what was happening was people basically said, look, when I'm surrounded by all these strangers, I don't really know them. The first thing I do is I take my phone out, I immerse myself in this phone. This is my escape. This, mm -hmm. And at that time, in those 20 minutes of commute, if you can send me a relevant offer, you got me there. You know, I love, there's this old photo of everybody standing waiting for a commuter train and it's from the 50s, and ah. the men have hats, and the women right. are wearing dresses, right. and everybody has a newspaper, newspaper open. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, <laughs> the same train station you see uh, taken recently, it's the same run of people, only right. everybody's standing exactly. looking at a, a, yeah. a cell phone. So what is it about crowding on a train or anywhere else that generates those negative emotions? Is it simply it's a relief to, to think about something else and... Is that why people respond to ads in, in those circumstances? It's an escape device, right? So when you're surrounded by people that you don't know, it creates and conjures many negative emotions, you know, some sort of adversity, hostility, stress, and so on. So shopping is actually a big stress reliever. You know, and psychologists have talked Even about- Even for millennials, because uh, we keep reading, well, these millennials are all about experiences and not consumerism. Is that true? I didn't actually, we didn't see any such evidence so far. I mean, I think we have been consistently looking at different demographic huh. splits and we continue to find, certainly, you know, with like Gen X and Gen Y, it's a lot more, mm -hmm. but it's still the same qualitative re result with millennials. And we've been talking about mobile phones, but mobile tablets are also a, a significant part of the market. Are these devices in the midst of essentially killing the desktop PC? Is is that a dying um, product? Um, I don't necessarily think so. Okay, I actually think that you know desktops or laptops are actually here to stay. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason is there's still a tremendous amount of productivity and, and work that you can get done on these larger devices that it's just hard to get done on a tablet or a smartphone. I, I okay? find I generate content on the desktop and I consume content yeah. on the mobile device. And you know what? People still buy products a lot more on desktops than on tablets. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that being said, you know, one of the uh, biggest myths that I unravel in the book is that, you know, the smartphone or the tablet is not very effective in marketing. Actually, that's not true. It may lead to 4 or 5% of your sales, but it has had an influence on up to 40% of your all of your sales because people first got exposed to your product on the smartphone. So they see it on the smartphone and then will either bookmark it or email themselves or what have you. Um, in order to make the purchase on a desktop. Exactly, right. I, is that a temporary phenomenon as we just get used to mobile technology, tablets, or, or is this just an ingrained behavior that's not going to change? It is changing. It is changing. In fact, you know, when I first started doing these studies in 2010 or at nine, just when the tablets were being introduced, you know, we saw these numbers were 1%, 1.5%. Today they are up close to 5%. Mm -hmm. So it's increasing. Uh, it will take some time. But there's a ton of headroom there. A lot of room. Right, so. We have been speaking with Professor Anindya Ghosh, author of the book, Tap, Unlocking the Mobile Economy. If you enjoy this conversation about all things mobile technology, well, be sure and check out our podcast extras. Uh, you can find that on Bloomberg.com, SoundCloud, and Apple iTunes. 
Be sure to check out my daily column. It's on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Anindya, thank you so much for doing this. This is thank this you. is an area I find absolutely fascinating. I I consider it a privilege to have been born in a period where I got to watch the arc of technology right. change so dramatically. Uh, the internet came out. I was still young enough to adopt to it, but it wasn't always there. It's something I yeah. had to learn at a, a point in my career, as opposed to, you know, I, I'm fascinated by my nephews and nieces who they grew up. There has always been smartphones, there's always been tablets, there's always been mm-hmm. um, internet, and to them it's just second nature as opposed to a... Yep. Uh, and I, I'm yep. fascinated to watch how that affects um, the way they interact with it. Tell me um, some things about the book that we didn't get to. What 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 do you think is significant that we simply didn't touch in any of our questions previously? Well, uh, I guess, you know, um, we covered a lot. Um, one of the things that we haven't talked about are, you know, these forces that are actually going to help companies unlock this economy, right? So I actually, in my book, The list- forces shaping the mobile economy. Right. And you list about 10 of them. And there are nine forces. There are nine okay. forces. Yeah. Context, location, time, saliency, crowdedness, trajectory, social dynamics, weather, and text mix. We didn't talk about weather. Right. I have to ask about that because that's fascinating. Um, how does weather affect people using mobile technology? Okay. So um, in various ways, you know, it's if I have to if I had to ask somebody um, if it's a nice sunny and bright day, um, are people more likely to be on their phones or less likely to be on their phones? Uh, my my instinct is to say less likely. They're out and about enjoying the weather. So it turns out actually. It's actually the opposite. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, they may be up and about, but they're still on their phones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might be taking a stroll in Central Park, and I'm there for three hours, but in at least half of that time, I've been on my phone. In so Central you're taking Park. pictures, you're doing Facebook or Instagram, you're using the mapping yep. software, yep. as opposed to if it's a really nasty rainy day, you're inside watching TV or on your computer. Right. If it's a rainy day, a nasty day, you are watching TV, but then you also have your tablet in front of you. Mm-hmm. So people are doing parallel processing of multiple devices. So, um, you know, one of my um, colleagues, uh, uh, co-authors on a different paper, he actually did a study. Um, I wasn't part of it, but he and his team did it. And they actually showed that on a sunnier day, people are more likely to spend time on their smartphones and make more purchases in the online space than in the offline space. Really? Yes. That, that's quite fascinating. What What's the psychology behind that? Is it they're just out enjoying the day, or you would think uh, presence is such a big movement these days. Hey, it's a nice day. We're out and about. Must your face be in the phone is right. a constant harangue. I'm sure lots of people have heard from their <laughs> right. significant others. Uh, are, are we always engaged with our phones, even on a on a beautiful day? If you're on the High Line or in Central Park or wherever you happen to be, 
you're more likely to purchase online than offline. So they actually related back to one simple thing, which is mood transformations. Mm -hmm. Basically, when the day is sunnier and nicer, you feel much better. I mean, your mood, you're in a better mood overall, right? When you're in a better mood overall, you're more likely to actually go down to that device and start looking for things to do. Okay. Uh -huh. Like shopping is another mood enhancer. So now you've got a brighter sunny day, you've got you know online shopping that is very ex easily accessible. Would you rather step out and walk a few blocks to get to the store if you can get that done online on your phone? Turns out that most people prefer to continue to be wherever they are, at work, at home, get on their phones and buy that product. So controlling, and this was a nice control field experiment you know, with a test group and a control group, they continue to find that we are more likely to actually buy things on our smartphones, even on a nicer, sunnier, brighter well, day. Well, I actually extend, extend the mood elevator. Why do I want to go into a fluorescent lit, whatever, <laughs> yeah. shopping, supermarket, whatever, when I could be outside? Yeah. And I recall there have been studies, I, I'm going to mangle this, so I apologize in advance. There have been studies that look at stock market performance yes. based on weather. That's right. And around the world, not yeah. just in New yeah. York, around the world, Rainy days are, uh, and sunny days actually have a skew that correlates with sunny days, better market, Absolutely. rainy days, worse. Absolutely. Which just tells you, now I wonder how that changes as we replace human specialists with algorithms, yeah. <laughs> but historically there's been this odd, yeah. odd correlation. Yeah. Um, let's talk about saliency. Yep. Yep. What is saliency relative to mobile technology? Okay, so this is also one of my favorites. You know, we live today in a world that of information overload and attention deficit economy. Mm -hmm. Too much information, too little attention. Saliency is a force which basically says, can I give you the best offer as a company? Can I give you the best offer? and prop it up right at the top where you can see it, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't want you to have to incur the cognitive cost of having to search things or browse things or, you know, there's a lot of clutter out there, okay? And so what saliency refers to is the ranking effect. How do I get my ad or my offer to be ranked at the very top so that more people are likely to see it, respond to it, and it does not get lost in the clutter down the screen? How do you do that? Okay, so here's where you know the combination of the same ranking algorithms used by search engines in sort of the online internet space can be deployed in the mobile app economy. So mm -hmm. when I open up Yelp today, for example, just to give an example, um, Yelp's Yelp has a standard set of algorithms, which is not actually necessarily based on the kind of bidding or auctions that happen on search engines, right? So I'm foreseeing a world where within a given app, when you've got multiple competitors vying for your attention, mm -hmm. we will get back into that bidding and auction space. And companies will want to bid more, get a better placement and a better rank to get more of our attention. Mm -hmm. um, and we did this actually, uh, you know, elements of this in Germany in a massive study involving 374 cities and towns of Germany with 3,500 companies using one single app. Mm -hmm. And we saw these ranking effects were dramatically powerful. Hmm. Quite fascinating. Yeah. And then the other one I wanted to ask from from the nine forces, trajectory. Right. What is trajectory? Okay, so this, I, I have to say, I guess I get excited by all of them, but this is the <laughs> most fascinating just because it's the most futuristic. Uh -huh. Now, I would tell you know our listeners, brace for impact, because this might be like, wow, it's really happening. But here's what it is. Bloomingdale's is right next door. Okay? Mm -hmm. Big store, multiple floors. Macy's is a few blocks away, right? Multiple floors. What if 
Imagine a world where the retailer knows not just where you are, but also where you have been in the past. Not too hard to figure out. You get that data pretty regularly. Well, now, basically, you know, the Wi-Fi in these department stores is a great instrument for them to get access to our real-time horizontal and vertical data. Which floor do you go to? Which store do you go to? How which much department within a store? Which department within a store? Which floor? How much time you're spending when that's department store? Mm-hmm. And we actually did that. So my chapter on trajectory talks about the studies we have done with shopping malls in different parts of the world, where, again, it was very important for us to follow the notice and consent formula, notify consumers when they sign up the Wi-Fi that you will get tracked, but in return for that, we are going to send you more relevant and less frequent offers. Mm-hmm. And it works like a charm. And what what is the response of consumers who are participating in those sorts of exchanges? Are okay. they spending more or are they making more purchases? So we have 35% higher response rates. We have uh, an order of magnitude, like twice, two and a half times more spending. Mm-hmm. The individual wow. store is benefiting. The overall mall is benefiting too. And another nice thing is with this trajectory-based advertising, because of the fact that our recommendation algorithms are so accurate, we can make you spend more money and spend less time so as to prevent crowdedness in these hmm. stores. So let's talk a little bit about these big um, suburban malls and other types of shopping areas. Yeah. We've seen, uh, we mentioned the number of stores that have been closing. We've generally been become over-retailed, uh, mm-hmm. is an expression I like, that in the 90s, all, all these big stores, you don't flick a switch and open a mall. They're multi-year, in some cases, decade-long projects. They began building them, uh, really expanding them in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and failed to acknowledge or think about what the internet was going to do to those retailers. Mm-hmm. And now we've seen a, a ton of empty stores, a lot of retailers that that over-retailing, that excess retail footprint is in the process of, I hate the phrase, right-sizing, mm-hmm. but coming back to what is in a more appropriate per capita footage, square footage, we're, we're I think, twice as much retail square footage as, as in America versus Europe. How much can technology bridge that gap for these retailers, can they really make the store experience more relevant, faster, smarter, more enjoyable? Um, yes. So the answer for all of this is yes, yes, and yes. And and here's why, right? So the, the Wi-Fi technology that I mentioned, you know, that's been used to curate offers in real time to people, shoppers in real time, it's not just about the commercial aspect of it in terms of retailing. We have now seen evidence where they can use the same data to redesign the department store or the mall mm-hmm. to figure out, you know, where are crowds, you know, ag- uh, sort of aggregating and how do you disperse the crowds? How do you optimize the workflow mm-hmm. so as to have more homogeneous distribution of crowdedness? Okay. In addition, you can find out where the hotspots are and have a higher retail price for those stores to be have their stores in the hotspots, right? Um, so there's a very interesting, you know, and since you mentioned you have interest in architecture and design, there's a very interesting architectural element to these trajectory data. It's not just about, you know, 
uh, commercializing through shoppers. You can actually completely change. You know, what we are talking with airports now in, in the Middle East, for example, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, about how this trajectory data can be used to redesign the layout of the retail segment of the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, where should be where should the most coveted stores be? Should they be closer to the terminals or further away? Uh, you know, does that, and all of those things. So. Hmm, that's quite fascinating. Yeah, with, with the malls. It's not going to be the. Is it going to be the individual stores, or is it going to be the, the mall owner that's going to have to implement these technologies? Yeah. So between a department store and a mall, there are these differences. You know, some are more centralized, some are more mm-hmm. decentralized. Um, you know, anchor stores. Right. Right. Um, in fact, in the U.S., the Mall of America in Minneapolis. I have a colleague here who's a professor in the University of Minnesota at Carlson. And he was telling me that, you know, he was beginning to do these talks with the Mall of America. And, you know, most likely I'll also get involved because, you know, both of them are aware of the work that we have done in the Far East. But look, here in Minneapolis, in the U.S., Mall of America wants to use Wi-Fi data to send these trajectory-based offers to consumers and use it for, you know, design layouts and all of that. So it's not just that they're in this department in the store. They could say they're walking towards Macy's. Let's get them a Macy's coupon. Yeah. So in fact, and more than that. So even within Macy's, you know, are you walking to the Tumi luggage store or to the Armani men's section? Huh. It is getting very granular, that, and I, you know, I find this awesome, fascinating. That's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's it's reminds me of the scene in Minority Report. Oh, exactly. Where, where exactly. Tom Cruise is walking, and the store is yeah. giving a customized pop-up ad to him. Yeah. It's not on his mobile phone. It's a 3D hologram projected in space in front of him, and the, the expectation is they're either tracking him by his mobile device or some other piece of uh, technology. We are going to get Minority Report on steroids. Okay. Really? Uh, yes, and, and very soon. because And, and they have to Ten do it. Ten years, five years? How far away is this? Mm, I, would, I would reckon two to three years. Really? Because they have to do this. Otherwise, these guys are going to go out of business. Then there's only going to be the Amazons and the the Jet.coms. It's just too competitive if they're not grabbing people's attention. They're in a desk pile. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. So I know I only have you for a a limited amount of time. Let's, uh, Let's jump to some of my favorite questions that I ask all my guests. Um... Let, let's start a little bit about your background. Ha, have you always wanted to be in academia? You also do a lot of consulting work as well. What What were you doing before um, uh, NYU? You were briefly at Wharton, if memory serves? Um, I was at Wharton for a year between 2011 and 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you know, I decided to join academia, um, well, I you know I did my PhD. Everybody has to do it. But before that, I worked in the industry for a couple of years with IBM and with a company called HCL Hewlett Packard. Both of them were in India. And you uh, you, you mentioned you you got both a master's and a PhD from Carnegie Mellon. That's right. And from there to IBM or from there to Wharton? Uh, no. So from there, I joined NYU after mm-hmm. my PhD. And I've basically spent 12 years at NYU and one year at Wharton. Mm-hmm. Um, but before my master's and PhD in the U.S. at Carnegie Mellon, I did an MBA in India um, mm-hmm. and an undergraduate in engineering. Um, and where does IBM fit into that timeline? So after my MBA, um, you know, I wanted to do something in IT consulting. So I got a job with HCL Hewlett Packard, uh-huh. and then I spent an year there, and then I moved to IBM again. A very similar 
portfolio, uh, e-commerce consulting. That's really when I started getting interested about the internet. It was 90 and 98, 99 and so mm-hmm. on. Just the internet was kind of you know, blowing up, up, blowing up. And I, I guess you know, I, I didn't find those two years very satisfactory. Um, I guess I wasn't, you know, what you call it intellectual challenge or you know, not enough curiosity. And that's what made me think about academia. And you also, you still do a lot of consulting for a lot of retailers and uh, uh, tech companies, mobile companies. Yeah. Who do you consult for? So I've consulted a lot for, you know, telecom providers, for tech companies, Facebook and Apple and Samsung. And then, you know, I've also worked with SK Telecom in South Korea and with China Mobile. Um, I've worked with other smaller startups and so on. Um, so I try to, you know, mix it up. And it keeps it always interesting and oh, different. I love it. And I love it, yeah. So tell us about some of your early mentors. Who were the people who affected how you think about the world, about technology? So I think I, I you know, my early PhD days at Carnegie Mellon is when I had, you know, a few amazing individuals who played a role. Um, you know, one of them was a professor in economics. His name is Uday Rajan. Mm-hmm. He's a professor now in the University of Michigan in Ann Harbor. And, you know, he became my closest mentor. I, I would basically spend, you know, a lot, chunk of the time with him. Um, in fact, he even bought me a laptop. So, you know, PhD students, you know, poor people, every dollar counts. And the fact that he would go out of his way, he didn't have to, right? Um, just buy me a laptop was amazing. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that we connected very well. And, you know, he gave me some awesome advice over the years. So he had a huge role at the beginning. And then when I came to NYU as a very young junior assistant professor, there's a professor at NYU called Bhatia Wiesenfeld. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's a professor of management. Um, She was appointed as my mentor. And initially I was a little surprised because she's from management. I am more of a quant person. But it just turned out it was the best decision NYU probably took for me. Really? Because she has, and I thank her very explicitly, both her and Uday Rajan in my acknowledgments, that there's a couple of lines just for them that you know I'm in de- and grateful to them. NYU does this as a matter of course. They have a mentoring program between junior and senior uh, professors, is that right? Yeah, so we try to do this because, you know, the world of academia is very cutthroat, especially in these very competitive top to your schools, you know, getting tenure is non-trivial process. You know, mm-hmm. lots of people come in as junior professors, only a handful of them get tenured. You can get lost along the way, you know, you can get devastated. You So having a mentor is really useful. Mm-hmm. And I think Stern really does it well um, by also pairing, you know, sort of different, back, people with different backgrounds. So. I had a quant background. They could have given me somebody from the quant area. They didn't. They decided to give me somebody who was more qualitative in terms of, you know, or more behavioral. Mm-hmm. But somehow that, you know, that is magical. That, that's a great, great idea. So. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. Tell us about um, other thinkers who influenced your approach to looking at and analyzing technology. So this might some, sound very, very uh, strange, but... My biggest influences in this space haven't necessarily come from technology. Uh-huh. Um, one of my biggest hobbies, which I try to pursue religiously, is mountaineering. I'm basically a high altitude climber. Someone, a previous guest, was also a high uh, altitude climber. I'm trying to remember who it was, but I was surprised because I didn't expect. It was like really. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, I I know most people think I'm crazy, right? You know, why would you want to go and climb these mountains with big 50, 60 pound backpacks? Right. But um, what what have you climbed recently? Um, so I've climbed a fair bit in South America, in you know Bolivia, Ecuador. Um, I've climbed Kilimanjaro in Africa. Mm-hmm. I've climbed parts of the Himalayas. Uh, I've climbed a lot in the Cascades, Rainier, and a few 14ers. How did you find your way into mountaineering? Like how did how did that become a thing for you? So almost you know like by luck I guess. So I started doing my undergrad in a in the northern part of India in a state called Punjab. Uh-huh. which is actually very close to the foothills of the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, every other weekend or every other month, my friends and I would just pack our bags and go hiking. And I realized that was when I was 18 and and I'd go on these hikes a few times a year and I loved it. And then um, I also realized somehow physically and mentally it was easy for me to do these things compared to some of the others, other mm-hmm. friends. And then they started egging me that hey, you know, if you just good at this hiking maybe you should take it up a notch and think about something more challenging and i said yeah it's you know i could do that so i joined this himalayan mountaining institute a course a one month boot camp course mm-hmm. very very tough uh you know like 40 people got in only seven came out alive kind of the camp right but um that really kind of uh you know taught me that outdoors is where i belong um you know if i had my way my job would have been that of like a professional mountaineering guide right um but then i realized while well, uh you know it's not the best paying job so <laughs> maybe i should do something else while you know continuing to climb so before i interrupted you you were going to say that one of the people who influenced your thinking right was um, Ed Vestures he's uh-huh. a, a one a amazing legendary american climber he's climbed all 14 8000 meter mountains without bottled oxygen and here's why i was most i've read all his books written many books but his mantra has been there are no shortcuts to the top mm-hmm. it's all about diligence you know kind of preparation preparation planning discipline you know in my profession people often say wow you know that person is so super intelligent okay i've always believed that in academics intelligence is highly overrated mm-hmm. and success to me is 99% diligence and 1% intelligence mm-hmm. and that the fact that it's all about diligence and planning actually came from reading and sort of experiencing vicariously what ed vestios has been doing all his life Yeah I I reference Michael Mobison's paradox of skill all the time yeah. which is in the market you have lots of really smart people it's a given that these folks are smart yeah. and Exactly paradoxically that yeah. makes luck all the more significant if yeah. you put a whole bunch of really right. sharp people in a room whoever gets a lucky break and and it turns out to be the same in sports yeah. where you have all these people who are physically gifted hard working and so they're also highly skilled mm-hmm. and then a lucky bounce uh, uh, an officiating mistake the 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 lucky break often affects the outcome it's just a given everybody is yeah. smart or skilled or what have you and i also believe that you know you can create your luck to some extent you know mm-hmm. if you are a disciplined hard working planning you know driven person you can influence to some extent that luck um, there's an expression and i know i'm mangling this but it's hard work is the mother of of fortune yeah meaning yeah. the you know the exactly. harder you work the luckier you tend exactly. to get yeah. although that said every now and then a little bit of luck sure. goes the right sure. way Absolutely. if you go uh, a long a long way Absolutely. so so back to mountaineering what do you do to prep 
to do forget an eight thousand <laughs> right. meter uh, meter or foot uh, meter, meter eight thousand yeah, meter yeah. mountain. What do you do for a five thousand meter? So a lot of training, and I would train easily four or five months continuously in a given year. Um, what, what are you doing when you're training? Um, I'm carrying big backpacks, and I'm climbing hundreds of floors every single day. And mm-hmm. some of the security guards in the tall skyscrapers of New York City know this weird you know, Indian-American guy who comes with a backpack and says, can I use the stairwell? So <laughs> I've had to get permission from the condo or the co-op boards to That's do that. That's funny. Um, but I do a lot of that, um, and then you know, are stairs roughly equivalent to going up the side of a mountain, or is it just the vertical exercise? Yeah, you know, it's not nearly as great as climbing a real mountain, or even the same. But mm-hmm. it's about the closest thing you can do in a city like ours, where we don't have any mountains, right? That said, every now and then, you know, when I'm getting in the middle of my training, I do take. I drive out to you know uh, New Jersey or upstate New York, mm-hmm. you know Bear Mountain, sure. and so on, and do multiple rounds with heavy backpacks. Just, Run up to the top, down. Yeah, yeah, as fast as possible. Go up and down, up and down. You know, it's about fifteen hundred feet or so to the top. Do two or three rounds, and that's pretty exhausting. What uh, What can you do to prep for altitudes where the oxygen is thinner? Is there Is there something you could literally? Because the last yeah. trip I had to. Colorado, where uh-huh. we were in, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on which of the ski resorts, Vail. I was shocked at at how much the lack of oxygen impacts you. Yeah, Ju- it's not even like running a mile. You're walking a hundred yards across uh, a space, and you're like, "Wow, I am genuinely out of breath." And out of shape. So, you know, one can be the most well-trained athlete on sea level and yet suffer the worst altitude-mounted sickness, AMS, mm-hmm. right? It's just one of those things where it's very difficult to plan and predict how it's going to be. For me, myself, you know, for the same level of training, for similar altitude, I've experienced different symptoms. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's been fantastic, sometimes not so good. What can I do? Not a whole lot. You know, there's something called a training mask. You may have seen those pictures of, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I like, it has three different nozzles. You know, each nozzle represents a certain percentage of air that can come in. You try to simulate that high altitude thing. It's not nearly as great as the real thing. Some of the real professional climbers, they use a tent, a tent that is able to actually suck out the oxygen. Um, I forget the name of the tent, but it's a new product uh, just launched by some of the big sporting companies who encourage climbers to spend, you know, 24 hours before they fly out to the big high mountain. So it's the opposite of a hyperbaric chamber where you're pumping yeah, extra oxygen exactly. in. That's right. Here you have less oxygen. Exactly. Yeah, you just <laughs> suck it out. Yeah. That, that's uh, that's amazing. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about uh, books. Tell me about some of uh, your favorite books. What do you like to read? So, well, you know, like I said, I love all books in mountaineering. Um, I've, I've basically read a ton of them, and not just by Ed give, give us a few names. Okay, well, No Shortcuts to the Top is my favorite. No Shortcuts to the Top by... By, by Ed Vestures. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it taught me a lot about life lessons. Um, then, you know, there are, uh, there are books written by, um, written on K2, the Savage Mountain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is one of them. Um, why, why is K2 considered so challenging versus others? So, is it just the sheer ascent or? Um, so K2 is basically built like almost a perfect pyramid. It's mm-hmm. extremely steep. And, you know, it is, um, so even though Everest is a tad bit higher, it's considered less technical from a climbing perspective than K2 is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's also uh, you know it is more treacherous because of, of so the steepness and the terrain the weather comes in very uh, quickly quickly and very unpredictable and the if you look at the stats you know one in seven climbers who have climbed Everest have died really well, one in seven right historically wow. um, and that number is you know um, going down over the years because technology has improved so much so we have fewer deaths but up until you know two or three years back, that was a number. That's with, insane. With K two, it's one in three. That's okay? even more insane. That's even more insane, and that's not the worst. The worst actually statistically is Annapurna, which uh-huh. is also one of the eight thousand meter mountains, and is one in two. So um, flip a coin, maybe you make <laughs> right. it, maybe you don't. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I um, I I'm gonna watch TV this weekend. I'm not climbing uh, anything. <laughs> Um, give us some other books. What what else do you like? Uh, along the lines of uh, K2, have okay. you ever read uh, the Shackleton story, Endurance? Um, it's a fascinating book. It's very familiar. I may have read it. Um, this is Antarctica. Not okay, okay. I know the name because of the, Anti- the, the person the, who crossed the Antarctica. The story, the, there's an amazing narrative about the book. The book came out. I want to say in the 30s or 40s, maybe it was right mm-hmm. before the war or right after the war, 50s. And it did okay, but, yeah. you know, no great shakes. And 30 years later, somebody bought the rights to it, reissued it, and it just explodes. It was yeah. the right time. And it's one of these stories that you – same thing about the no shortcuts. Uh, everybody yeah. should have died. And, yeah. And – I, don't, I won't spoil the ending, even though everybody knows it, but it's just that the ship gets caught in the ice, the ice crushes it, you're in Antarctica with essentially, you don't have a cell phone, you don't have any way to yeah. communicate with people. There's a hope that you're supposed to meet people six months from now, how do I get from this side of the world to there with essentially whatever supplies we can scrape up from the ship as it's you know, right. being crushed in the ice? It's, in, it's insane, I'm sure. Um, some of the tales of K two yeah. are are similar. Let let's move away from extreme um, <laughs> activities. What other books, technology, economics? What else uh, have you enjoyed over time? So um, I mean, this is not necessarily technology, but again, you know, one of the other breed of folks I greatly respect and admire are special forces. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have, I, I'm fascinated by the U.S. Navy series, the Delta Force, uh, the Army Rangers. Mm. And again, just like movies, I've read a ton of these books. Uh, one of my favorites is Lone Survivor. Um, which became a movie, which didn't Which became it? a movie, yeah, yeah. with Mark's, Mark Wahlberg as mm-hmm. the guy. But the real guy was Marcus Luttrell. Um, so I actually follow his Twitter feed. Um, so again, I think you know I, I read a lot of these books written by on special forces. Um, in the world of technology, you know, um, I try to read not necessarily so many books, but a lot of the internet websites like mm-hmm. you know Mashable and TechCrunch and Fast Company, because one of my occupational hazards is I have to be always updated with the latest right. and the best, right? Right. And so in some ways, if I have to do that, I have don't have a whole lot of time to actually spend reading an entire book. Um, so it's, it's it's sort of a trade-off there. You know, when early in my career, uh, I started on a trading desk, and the head trader was a former Marine jungle combat instructor. Right. And I share your um, interest in, in special forces. 
and you hear some of the stories you hear are just amazing they're, unbelievable they're astonishing yeah. Yeah. and it's amazing how parallel it is to other aspects of life it's yeah. really and we're we're finding more and more things are applicable one of the things that i found astonishing and this is out of the special forces before they go on a mission the night before they go through a visualization technique yep. where they're yep. going through each step of the of the plans whatever the uh, insertion or event is right. and part of the training is okay x goes wrong visualize yes. Not only what your tools and resources are and how you can respond to it, but imagine how you're going to feel emotionally when this happens. That's correct. And yep. so the, what people have said to me is when something actually goes wrong and you feel that panic rising, you've already prepped yourself for it and you can manage it. You can deal with it because yep. left unchecked, your emotions it, in those circumstances are deadly and yeah. you can't have that happen. Yep. And it's so parallel to investing if when you say to people, all right, so the market's going to be down 35 40%, how are you going to behave? What are you, what's your emotional state going to be? Yep. If you could get people to go through those exercises, their behavior is better when events actually hit. I agree, that, yeah. That, that's any other books on special services or special forces that you think are, are worth uh, mentioning? Well, I, I really loved, um, I think it's called 13 Hours in Benghazi. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this hero. Came out last year or it two years ago? It came out last ago? year, yeah. a book, and the movie was made. Awesome, recommend that highly. But again, mm -hmm. like, and I'm biased. <laughs> um, but again, you know, you get to understand the psycholo psychology and the mental fortitude and the prowess of these special people. And, you know, that really motivates me because it's not just about what I have to deal with in the mountains, but even in daily life, like you mentioned. You know, we have lot, academic publication is a tough process. I mean, you know, you 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 publish or perish, right? So, mm -hmm. it, it just teaches me to be more resilient. Um, you know, just be stronger mentally. So it it makes it it makes it easier for me to deal with these things. It, it's really astonishing. My my office is about fifteen percent veterans. We find they work very well in the world of finance yeah because they're dealing with yeah. complex logistics and and getting them done and in our office there are no bullets whizzing by your head so it's actually easy for them what most people look at and say gee this is really hard this is really complicated well you're not in a plumbing aircraft nobody's shooting at you yeah it's relatively yeah. easy compared to and, and you know my favorite mba students or emba students and i might get beaten for this are <laughs> the wets because these guys are the most disciplined in the class, they're the most ready, they have prepared, and they're the least in terms of flashy, flamboyant, or showing off. They're my favorites, so. The, if, I could, if I could just teach a class with only wets, I would just do anything for that. So, uh, do you have a lot of people who come out of the armed services? Yeah, in, in yeah. School? So, you know, all the most of the top business schools have special programs for um, XR, uh, you know, vets. Mm -hmm. um, so, in fact, um, in last fall, I actually had an ex uh, ex Navy SEAL person in my class. Right. No one to mess with. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely not. Um, but it was such, you know, and he was one of a few other, um, you know, ex-army, ex-special forces, ex-marines. It's just awesome to have them in the class. You so. know, I, 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 I shouldn't tell these stories, but we used to go out off the trading desk, and one of the guys is a former army ranger. The head of the desk is a former marine combat yeah. instructor. I'm like a skinny nothing back then as opposed to a fat nothing now. And we would go to bars, and, and anytime there was trouble, I always felt like I could <laughs> right. say or do anything. I got these two monsters with me. 
you know, guy wants to cause trouble. It's like, all right, right. bring it. You know, it was. It, it creates a false sense of uh, of confidence, right. Right, right? When you're when you're as long as they they have your back. But right. it, it really is true. The attitude that you develop when you think about these highly technical, highly dangerous missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the armed services are really good at learning how yeah. to do these things, if nothing else, through just repetition and trial and error, and eventually they get it down to a science. Correct. And, and yeah. these guys are really quite amazing. Yep. It, it's astonishing. All right, let's, let's get back into uh, no more literal war stories. Let's mm-hmm. get back into um, our favorite questions in the last 10 minutes or so we have. So... What changes have you noticed since you began focusing on mobile? How has the industry shifted? And is it just a never-ending flux? Is this always going to be in change? Or what What do you see? Um, I think the biggest change has been that the change from focusing on strategy to tactics. Mm-hmm. And, and that the reason that change has happened is because of the increasing accessibility of data that lets companies actually measure the effectiveness of their tactics. And now they can go back and justify the ROI. You know, why am I spending on mobile? And so up until recently, the focus was, do we have a mobile strategy? Meaning like, do we have a mobile app, a mobile website? Today it's more like, well, obviously we have to have one of those, but is the investment worth it? So people are recognizing, hey, this is important. Yes, absolutely. And, and yeah. earlier, there was ambiguity about Earlier, that? there was more of a recognition that it's important, but there was no way to measure how important it was, how mm. effective it was. And that's changed now. So what's the next big shift we're going to see in this space? I think it's going to be this intersection of mobile with the consumer internet of things, Right. And so, you know, more of us, more of us wearing variable devices, uh, and we were talking about this earlier, about getting used to, you know, your smart refrigerator, making mm-hmm. a phone call, reminding you that you just run out of groceries, you know, and stuff like that. I think that's going to be more of a norm than a, an exception. So the likes of Alexa or you know, Cortana or Siri and so on, artificial intelligence is going to start taking an important role in our lives. You know, some may say they'll take over our lives. I don't think it's like, like that, but I think they'll have a very important influence. And so, you know, this intersection of AI, consumer IoT, and the mobile phone is right in the middle. Okay? It's mm-hmm. all going to be propelled and powered and sort of, you know, influenced by the mobile phone. Hmm. Quite quite interesting. Let, let me um, shift it up on you a little bit. Tell us about a time you failed and what did you learn from that experience? So um, just after high school, you know, this was in India. And, you know, in India, if you want to do engineering, sort of the one brand everybody recognizes is IIT. Okay? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to go to an IIT. Indian Institute of, of Technology. Technology. Correct. Right. So a lot of the folks in Silicon Valley or on Wall Street have IIT backgrounds. I always thought, you know, I'd be able to get in because I had great grades in high school. I was like crushing it, but for various reasons, I didn't make it. That was devastating uh, because I didn't make it at the same time. All my friends who I knew would make it made it. That was a big failure. But basically, you know, I learned that, um, you know, yeah, you know, life can push you back, throw you out a few times, but you got to just come back. And, you know, momentarily there's some disappointment. So I promised myself in my first year of engineering, I still went to a decent engineering school. Uh, NIT. NIT, yeah. Um, 
it's, you know, most people will say it's it's great, but for me it was a disappointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I'm still proud of where I went. And I told myself in the first year that since I always had a plan to do an MBA, and in India the big MBA brand are these IIMs. Mm-hmm. And I promised myself on day one I'm going to get to the IIMs. You know, come hell or or hell or heaven or whatever it is. Hell or high water. Hell or high water, right? <laughs> And um, I just religiously studied like a zombie for four years, just make that happen, and it happened. So, huh. um, so the lesson learned was just double your efforts. Don't give up. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, life is a marathon. It's not just a sprint. Okay, mm-hmm. you didn't make it to the IIT, but look, if you make it to the IAMs and uh, then eventually do the things you want to do, you can still make it happen. And our last two favorite questions... Uh, if a millennial or recent college graduate came up to you and said, hey, I'm interested in getting into information services, mobile technology, what have mm-hmm. you, what sort of career advice would you give them? So what I would ask them is, you know, are you thinking it from an engineering perspective or from a business perspective? Okay, That's the first thing, because you're about to you know, enter into uh, an undergraduate program. Do you want to get into more of the technical engineering aspects or more of the business aspects? That's the first thing. Once you decide that, then it's a question of if you get into business, you know, do you want to be the, the strategist, the big thinker, or do you want to be the tactical tactician, the one who's going to be analyzing the data, building the models, and that sort of thing. So you know, at every stage, you, there's a decision tree to be asked. And these are the kind of questions I'll ask them. And our last question, what is it that you know about technology, smartphones, mobile tech today that you wish you knew 10 to 15 years ago when you... Uh, first we're starting out? Well, that's a great one, actually. Um, you know, sometimes I do wish um, I kn- had known earlier um, how accurate the measurements will get to be. Because mm-hmm. um, basically what I mean is, you know, I've always been a fan of metrics and measurement. And 10 years back, the accuracy of the data and the quality of the data was nowhere near as good as where it is today, right? Um and so along the way, you know, I've had to build models or design projects, and these are all long-term things. So if I knew five years from now how accurate the data would be or how great the metric would be, I would design it differently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. So uh, always. Yeah. We have been speaking with Professor Anindya Ghosh of NYU Stern School of Business and author, most recently, of TAP, Unlocking the mobile economy. If people want to find some of your other research or papers, they can go to the NYU Stern site to, yes. to find your list, your CV and your list of publications. That's right. I have a homepage that's also on the NYU Stern website, so uh, please go there. And, and again, my email's there as well. And if somebody has to reach out to me, I'm on email. My Twitter hashtag is A-G-H-O-S-E. I'm on LinkedIn. So either way, it's, I'm well, there. Thank you, Anindya, for being so generous with your time. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out any of the other 150 or so prior podcasts we've had. Just look up or down on iTunes or SoundCloud or bloomberg.com, and you can see the full run of all of our guests. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank my head of research, Michael Batnick. Taylor Riggs is our producer uh, and our recording engineer and audio producer is Medina Parwana. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. 
our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC.